John chapter 5, beginning at verse, or 1 John chapter 5, sorry about that, beginning at verse 1, and then reading on through verse 15, or 13. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world? But He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. He who does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed the testimony that God has given of His Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Our kids know the story of their births. Um, it's been kind of a priority for me and Lindsay to, uh, as they come of age where they're able to understand um, things from years back, to share with them about how, you know, how we knew that Lindsay was in labor, like when that happened, how far along she was with Imogene and the rush to the hospital and, you know, Daddy pulling in at the, the night stop and rushing her in, and then Daddy later barely getting into the room before Imogene's born. All that stuff we, we've decided to, uh, to share with our kids because the fact is most of us don't know a thing in the world about our birth. In fact, I would be willing to, to bet that, I'm a betting man, that, uh, uh, that over half of us don't even know what time of day we were born. Uh, it's interesting how that sort of thing works out. Uh, our children, were they there at their birth? Of course they were. Did they understand what was happening at the time? Of course not. They were probably scared to death wondering what in the world happened to that warm, dark place where all the voices were muddled and suddenly now there's beeping and bright lights and freezing cold temperatures and people poking on them and stabbing them with things and holding their legs down and measuring on them. What in the world has happened to my life? It was joyous. It was bliss. It was comfortable. And now this. 
The fact is that uh, there are things that happen to us in life that we don't recall the details of and sometimes that we don't even understand. Regardless of how old we are, there are things that happen in my life at the age of 32 that I just do not get. I don't understand how it happened. I don't understand why it happened. I don't understand how it could have happened. You know, it's... Uh, Life has a funny way of working. Something happens, it becomes a story. In fact, it becomes a part of a story. And then forever, we are changed. Regardless of how large or small. You know, you go to college. That thing happens. You got lots of stories about it. Lots of stories about dorm life. Lots of probably inappropriate stories and things that you don't want to share with folks. But that, those stories become a part of our life story and forever we're changed for the good or the bad. Maybe we didn't learn anything in college. Maybe we got a bum degree that doesn't help us out at all in life. Our kids even now are developing a life story. Emery can point to his eyebrow and show you the scar of when he walked into a glass table at Belk and emptied blood all over the place. Everybody's running around screaming and yelling. He doesn't really remember much about it. He just remembers kind of the stories of it. He was old enough to know what was happening. He was old enough to, to remember it. He vaguely remembers it. But a lot of what he remembers is from what Lindsay and the kids and I have rehearsed to him. Reminding him about what happened. And forever he'll have that scar. One day his girlfriend, who will hopefully become his wife, will say, what in the world is wrong with your eyebrow? And hopefully she won't mean that offensively. He's a cute kid. He's got good looking eyes. When, um, uh, when he poked himself in the eye with scissors, and I, don't even, I, I, his dad, still don't understand how in the world you do that. How in the world you open a thing of scissors, keep your eye open, and get the blade in, up, onto the, uh, up onto the actual eyeball. But when that happened, of course I'm grabbing him, Lindsay, I'm running to the hospital, load him in the car, and I'm telling him, keep your eyes open, don't touch your eye, quit rubbing your eye, and the whole time I'm driving there, I'm thinking, that kid has the most gorgeous of eyes, and now he's going to have some geeked up eye. That, those were the thoughts that I had, Bill, being, just being honest here, just, as, as uh, Dr. Smith used to say, our president seminary, I'm not preaching, I'm being honest. <laughs> some of you got that. But something happens, it becomes a story, it becomes a part of a story, and then forever we're changed. An injury heals and leaves a scar. An inheritance that we receive has its benefits, and then you've got life thereafter, squandering the inheritance. That's how life works. Things happen to us. They become a part of our story. And forever we're changed for the good or the bad. John, the apostle, writing in the latter years of his life, perhaps even beyond the lives of most of the other, if not all the other disciples of Christ, he writes in a very storied way. It's... Um, it's beautiful 
to read his literature. Uh, the Gospel of John as well as his epistles and then of course the book of Revelation. But John has a very interesting way of writing. He writes in story form. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they write the Gospel as a story. But they, they seem much more concerned with, with the details of the history of things. John, you see, is crafting something of beauty and something of magnificence. He uses images and light and darkness and love and hatred, rejection, acceptance. He uses themes of water and living water. Themes, interestingly enough, of baptism and communion that he never explicitly mentions by name. He alludes to baptism. He alludes to Holy Communion. He writes in a very storied way. And as he writes his first epistle, he is reminding his readers, he is reminding those who are facing persecution, those who are facing suffering, he is reminding them of their part in God's story and of how God has begun a story in their lives. He writes to them, first of all, of God's gift to us. And God's gift to us is very interesting. It's not some small gift. It's not some cute, quaint gift. It's not something of seeming insignificance. It is something large. It is something magnificent. It is something bigger than you and I even first imagined when we received that gift. God's gift to us is salvation and sonship. It is not just salvation. God does not just save us from something. He makes us His children. We, we love that beautiful passage um, at the at the segue from chapter two into chapter three, where he's writing to those he calls little children, he says, "Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him." And he says, "Beloved, now we are children of God." It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. It's interesting. Um, in, the, in some of the earlier manuscripts, not the earliest, but some of the earlier manuscripts, you find a little, almost like a little footnote, a little, a little jot out, into, out in the column of the text there. When John says, uh, and now we are the children of God, the... Uh, one of the scribes wrote a little note out to the side exclaiming, and that is what we are. God doesn't just call us His children. He doesn't just pretend that we're His children. He actually makes us His children. He has declared that we are His children. Salvation is not just about making it to heaven. It's even more about being adopted into God's very own family. You see, God is looking for sons and daughters. He is looking for those that He can bring into the family. Those that He can make His own. Those to whom He can leave an inheritance. It's interesting the, the, the uh, references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as God's inheritance to us. And the, also the, uh, uh, the references to us as God's inheritance. I um, Just yesterday, it's funny how things uh, work out that... Um, become very appropriate and, and, and poignant in life. Sometimes just little small things. Um, 
if, if we would slow down sometimes in life and open our eyes a little bit, it'd be interesting the things that, that we notice. Um, but I was walking through a parking lot, and I ran across this bumper sticker. Get out of hell free, John 3.16. And you got the little, the little uh, Monopoly man guy being you know, rescued from the flames of hell. And I thought, you know what? That is very interesting. That, that's the one thing that we want to tell people about the Christian faith, that you can miss hell. That's not even the most important concept of salvation in the Scriptures. The Old Testament hardly even mentions it. The idea of the afterlife. And the New Testament talks an awful lot more about the fact of what we're able to inherit in salvation. We're not even talking about heaven here. We're talking about missing hell. It's interesting also that Jesus' scathing words about hell were in warning to the religious. Jesus didn't walk the wilderness hollering out to the Greeks and Gentiles, you're all going to hell, but I can save you. You can miss it. He uses those concepts of outer darkness and torment in warning to those who are filled with spiritual arrogance, those who thought that they could trust in themselves and cared nothing for others. But God's gift to us is salvation and sonship. His gift to us is to make us to be His children. His gift to us is a redeemed life in His Son Jesus. And He tells us that it is that faith in Him The faith by which we are redeemed that has overcome the world. But God gives to us not just a gift, but we also find John writing about God's witness to us. And God's witness to us is very interesting. He speaks of an internal witness and He speaks of an external witness or external witnesses. His witness to us is first of all, the internal witness. His Spirit. Himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He spoke very interestingly to His disciples. You would think He's just kind of reminding them of the things He shared with them over the, the previous three years. You know, alright guys, the big test is coming up. Um, so let's, let's kind of go back over this. Let's have a cram session. You know, that's what we do in college when, when we're grossly ill-prepared for the exam that's coming up. But the disciples, they were grossly ill-prepared for the exam of life that was coming up and the exam of rejection that was coming up. But Jesus does not have a cram session with them. Instead, He says, you guys don't know enough yet. And He starts telling them about the Spirit who is to come. And He starts warning them. Now, by the way, they're going to throw you out of the synagogues and the world's going to hate you and reject you. But it's okay because they're doing the same to me. And He goes on to tell them, look, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In fact, I will come to you. 
And he, said, he promises the Holy Spirit. He refers to the Spirit as the promise of the Father. Taking a theme from, from the prophets of the Old Testament. And he says that, his, that he will pray to the Father. He will ask the Father to send the Spirit. And they together will send the Spirit. And he, he then interestingly says, the Spirit will come and reside in you. And he will bring the presence of myself being Jesus. Not me being Jesus, but you get, you get where I'm going here. Um, and the Father. So Jesus prays to the Father. They send the Spirit, and the Spirit brings to us to live within our hearts Himself and the presence of the Father and the Son. And John tells us that that witness lives within us, that that witness is within us. Testifying to us that we are the children of God. Testifying to us that we have been made His sons. That we have received His salvation. But God's witness to us, God understands us better than we understand ourselves. And so His witness to us is not just something internal. He offers us also something external. Something tangible. Something our hands can touch. Something our eyes can see and our ears can hear. He offers us the external witness. The external witness of the sacraments which have been entrusted to the church. He mentions here water and blood. and He says that Jesus came not only by water but also by blood. He came not only being baptized, but He came also shedding His blood for us. And John uses, uses these two images in his letters and in his gospel. He uses these two images of water and blood to kind of in an in a, in a, um, ambiguous, mysterious way. You get the idea that John is leading you to believe something beyond just what the text says. But he uses these two as images of baptism and what we call the Eucharist, Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. And they are given, these two external witnesses are given to the church. They are entrusted to the body of Christ. Commissioned by her Lord. to be witnesses to us of the work of God in our hearts and in our lives. Baptism to us is a sign. A sign pointing us to the fact that we have new life in Christ. It's spoken of also as a seal. It is a seal of a covenant. When we enter into baptism, we enter into covenant with God. Much like a Hebrew newborn baby would be circumcised and therefore enter into covenant with God and would be a son of the covenant, so also are those who are baptized in Christ inheritors of a covenant. Baptism is also seen as an entrance into the life of the church. In Holy Communion, 
we celebrate the real presence of Christ. This is His table. These elements from which we'll partake later are His. This is His meal, His table. This is His house. We are His people. And we are called to join Him at His table. In fact, He promises us that that one day in heaven we will celebrate this meal together. And Paul tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death till He comes again. Holy Communion is a declaration, a profession of the faith. And it's a remembrance. Most communion tables on the, on the front of them, they have engraved into the wood this do in remembrance of me or just in remembrance of me. Reminding us of the words of Jesus as He gave the elements to His disciples on that Maundy Thursday. God has not left us without witness. He has given us a witness within our hearts and He has given us a witness out before our eyes. Uh, after the service, one of the things I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be filling out this certificate of baptism for little John Reed. And it, uh, it goes into this nice frame here. And his mom and dad, they'll hopefully put a picture on one side and they'll have his, his little uh, certificate on the other side. And this frame, this certificate, this picture will stand as a reminder a witness, a testimony of the grace of God and of this day. And God has given us His witness. He's given us lastly also a charge. God's charge to us. And His charge to us is to stand firm and to share the faith. We, as evangelicals, are part of a church that largely believes that salvation is just about missing hell. But John declares to us to stand firm. To stand firm. To stand firm as if our life depend upon it, depends upon it. Because it does. He calls us not just to make a commitment. Not just to dedicate some part of our lives. But He calls us to stand firm in that commitment. To stand firm in that dedication. To stand firm in what God has done in our behalf. He speaks of that in the language of abiding. To abide is to find one's rest in. To find one's home or habitation in. Salvation is not some visit to a vacation spot. It's not staying in a hotel for a week. 
It is taking up residence in the home of God. And so John tells us, and God charges us to stand firm and to share the faith, to proclaim the faith to one another. We live in a world of whims and wimps. Nobody wants to stand for anything. Nobody wants to profess anything. Nobody wants to claim anything. Nobody wants to declare anything. Nobody wants to say, this is true. We live in a world of whims and wimps. This was um, illustrated very, uh, very frankly to me this week when I saw, um, when I was sent a picture on my cell phone from a friend. Welcome. Instead of telling you what to believe, we thought you might have a few ideas of your own. This is a legit church down in Atlanta. I say legit, as legit as that can be, I guess. But instead of telling you what to believe, we thought you might have a few ideas of your own. Just, you know, come on in and let's share all of our ideas together. There's, there's nothing of substance that the, that the Christian faith really believes. Everything's kind of up for grabs. We live in a world of whims and whims. What's the, the, the first rule of... of uh, of, of breaking addiction, the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. We have a problem, folks. Nobody wants to, to stand for anything. Nobody wants to, to declare anything to be true. Nobody wants to say, this is the gospel of Christ. Nobody wants to say, this is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. Nobody wants to say, this is the faith that Jesus gave His disciples and they recorded for us in Scripture. Everything's just kind of up for grab. Everything is just kind of on a whim. Because it seems everybody's just a bunch of whims. I say that in the, the, the fullness of the love of Christ. I mean it kindly when I call you a bunch of wimps. Not calling you guys a bunch of wimps. Some of you made me that. <laughs> and so what faith? What is this faith that we stand firm in? What is this faith that we're to share? What is this faith that's being spoken of when John says that anyone that believes Jesus the Christ is born of God? What is this faith that enables John to declare that anyone who has the Son has life? And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The early church, and by early, I mean the New Testament church. I mean Jude. You ought to read it sometime. It's in your New Testament. I mean John. I mean Paul. They believed that there was a faith contained in Scripture, contained in what they were writing, that was fully reliable, that had been given to them by Jesus Himself. And it is this faith 
that the church has held on to for 2,000 years. That, this, that, that the church of God has taught, has expressed, has entrusted into catechisms and classes and theology textbooks, most especially in the creeds. It is this faith that they believe they had received from Jesus Himself. And if we're not willing to stand on that, then indeed everything is really up for grabs. Believe what you want. But God's charge to us is to stand firm and to share the faith. You know, the most fundamental... The most, the most first base of first base where we ought to share our faith is in the context of family. If parents don't share their faith with their children, let me rephrase that. Show me a parent who doesn't share his faith with his child and I'll show you a parent who doesn't share his faith with anyone. That makes it like an idiot or something, right? If if the Christian faith is not found in the context of a home, it's not going to be found in the context of a church, and it's not going to be found in the context of a, of a community. The church can talk all day long. The church can talk till it's blue in the face. The church can talk till it has no more breath left about reaching the world for Jesus. But if we do not reach our children for Jesus, if the family is not the context of faith, then the world never will be. God's charge is to stand firm and to share the faith. I don't think it's um, coincidental that John refers to his hearers as his little children. He sees the Christian faith as part of a family. John recognizes he's been grafted into a new family. And so we have in this Christian faith, in this gift to us, we have reminding us in this witness that God has given to us. And we have a call to the carpet, so to speak, in God's charge to us. The expectation to live in accord with the divine inheritance. We are the inheritance of God and God's inheritance has been given to us through His Spirit who gives us life in His Son Jesus. And we're called to trust Him on that. We're called to thank Him for that. And we're called to share that life, to share that faith with others in need. So I want to invite you to take out your communication cards once again and to look at the back. You've got a place of response up at the top of the back. 
and you've got the same response on the back of your bulletin. I want you to hang on to your bulletin. I tell you all almost every week, it's a good bookmarker. It, uh, it's got a nice straight hard line you can read. You know, you can keep, keep it up under the, uh, the words of your page if that's, that's uh, what you're into. Um, but on the back of your communication card, I'd like for you to mark the response as well. Because um, this helps me to remember how to pray for you throughout the week. And I wonder if perhaps you find that you're in need of giving your life to Christ. Perhaps you recognize either you've never done that, you've never said, Lord, my life is yours, it, it's been, you've given it to me as a gift, and I'm giving it to you. I will live for you. I want you to live in me. Or perhaps you've walked out on that commitment you've made. Perhaps you've walked out on the salvation that's been offered to you in Jesus. If that's the case, I want to invite you to give your life to Christ. If you mark that one, then you'd better mark the second one. If you didn't mark that one, then still consider marking the second one. We ought to be thankful and grateful and never forget the gift that we have received in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to thank Him for, for redeeming your life. For giving you a new life. For making you to be a child of His Father. And then lastly, if you're really thankful, now I wonder if you would consider sharing your faith, sharing Him with someone else. Finding someone that you can pray for for quite a while. Finding someone that you can start investing your life, your time in. And begin finding avenues through which you can share your faith in Christ with them. We have been given, we have been entrusted with a divine inheritance. And that inheritance is not for ourselves only. It is for the world that Christ died to redeem. Let's pray.